morning, church. So after seeing my sister get baptized, it's with great pleasure that I read this passage, uh, which comes to you today from the book of Matthew, chapter 5. I'll be reading from verses 1 to 12. If you'd like to follow along, please do so. It's in the bulletin on page 6. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. The disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because your reward because your reward in heaven because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Some of you may wonder if you're experiencing a little bit of deja vu. Haven't we looked at this passage recently? The answer is yes. Uh, Today we are returning to our study of the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. And just before Easter, we left off in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so instead of just diving right back in abruptly, I, I wanted to back up just a a little bit to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and uh, look at what is often called here the Beatitudes. And hopefully your response to this will be better than that over there. Let's say a word of prayer uh, and we'll move forward here. Jesus, we're asking that you would do what only you can do, which is to make this time spiritually profitable, meaningful, uh, worthwhile. We, we, you can do that. We can't do that. We can't make our ears hear. We can't make our hearts listen. We can't make our lives change. You must do that. And so humbly, we open wide our lives and we say, Holy Spirit, please come. Come through your word. Come to this time. Come to this place and have your way with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My beloved team, the 15-time world champion Los Angeles Lakers, are terrible. Are terrible. I'm agreeing with you. Case in point, who was that anyway? Case in point, we are right in the middle of the NBA playoffs, and the Lakers' most exciting news is that they are getting a new coach. Uh, not a new championship banner, a new coach for next season. That's the new news. 
Everyone's curious, well, okay, not everyone, I am, about what changes Coach Luke Walton is going to make because that's what new coaches do, right? They lay down a, a grand plan early on and they let the team and the fans know, well, this is what the main focus is going to be. This is what our core values are going to be. Defense. This team is going to be all about defense, says a new coach. No, not in L.A. No. <laughs> it's the same way when a restaurant comes under new management. Uh, the quality of the food must change, they announce, or customer service is what we're going to be all about. And so here's Jesus coming in as king, a, a true spiritual king ushering in what he describes as a new kingdom, a, a new administration, and like a new coach or a new restaurant manager, he lays down what you might call the, the core values of his kingdom. That's what we call the Beatitudes, the passage that we're looking at this morning. This list of different ways in which Jesus says the people of his kingdom will be blessed. Beatitude is Latin for blessed or blessing. And in the Bible, to be blessed is to have the, the favor of God, the approval of God. The Beatitudes, then, is a quick way in which Jesus tells us what kind of people have the favor of God, the smile of God, if you will. We studied this passage more closely in more detail two months ago, and if you're interested, you can find that sermon on our website. And today, we're simply going to look quickly at two lessons, draw out two main takeaways here from the Beatitudes. And the first lesson is this, that God looks beneath the surface of our lives. God looks beneath the surface of our lives. Most of us live as though life is sort of a performance. It's all about what you produce while on stage, whether, whether if that's the stage of your friendships, the stage of your roles in life as daughter or parent or neighbor, the stage of your neighborhood, the stage of your personal development. Everything that happens, we tend to assume, backstage or everything that happens behind the scenes doesn't really matter, only what happens out there when the audience is watching. The Beatitudes teaches us that life is what happens backstage. Life is what happens backstage when and where no one else seems to be looking. Or to change the metaphor, God sees you and me as an iceberg. What do they say? That 90% of an iceberg's mass lies beneath the surface of the water. God cares most about what's going on beneath the surface, the visible things of our lives, which is to say in this passage we see that God cares about character, and he cares about emotional health. 
I mean, notice in the Beatitudes, verse 3 even, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's a reference basically to humility, our willingness to repent, admit our dependency upon God, having a real sense of spiritual and moral bankruptcy. I can't do it on my own. Jesus points us to meekness. In verse 5, blessed are the meek. In verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, it's the person that knows they haven't yet arrived. They're still in process. This is sort of the character of teachability. In verse 7, blessed are the merciful, the forgiving, the patient, the gentle with those who offend and wrong us. In verse 10, Jesus refers to what you might describe as the forbearing the long-suffering. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, who can endure persecution with righteousness. You might be aware that New York Times columnist and author David Brooks has been doing a lot of reflecting on character in the last couple of years. And he very helpfully sort of... uh, organizes our thinking on the topic in this way. He says, you may not realize there are actually two sets of virtues out there, what he calls resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are the skills that you bring to the marketplace, the kinds of things, qualities, characteristics, competencies that you put on your resume. Eulogy virtues are the ones that are talked about at your funeral. Whether you were honest, kind, brave, loyal, courageous, humble, whether you were capable of love and friendship and self-sacrifice. Brooks says, we all know that eulogy virtues are more important than the resume ones, but our culture And our educational systems spend so much more time teaching skills and strategy you need for career success than the qualities that you need to radiate this sort of inner light. He concludes, many of us are clear on how to build an external career than on how to build inner character. And isn't it true? Isn't it true? How much time and energy is put to these outward things. Some of you are experts on it. Some of you are wishing you had more of it. When all the while, God's attention is focused on what's beneath the surface. Character matters more to God than competence. It's simply biblically true. When God calls leaders into his service... For instance, in the office of elder or deacon, what do we find listed in the New Testament? Not the qualities of who's going to make a fine, competent, gifted, able, impressive leader in terms of their resume virtues. But no, all you find almost exclusively are a list of character virtues. God cares more about character than competence which isn't to say he doesn't care about competence. He gives us our gifts. He gives us our talents. He gives us our abilities. But will we believe, as the Beatitudes lead us to believe, 
that God can do far more with a person who is rich in character and poor in talent than a person who is rich in talent and poor in character. Because if we really believed that, we would apply ourselves much more on what lies within When was the last time that you really applied yourself to growing in patience? Where you said, no, what I'm going to set out to do in the next year or the next five years is to discover new horizons of humility that I've never known before. That that really, I'm, I'm endeavoring to become a more merciful person. When was the last time you applied yourself with the kind of energy and the kind of even sacrifice and the kind of mental energy, sometimes even stress over what you feel like you're most lacking in, which are usually your resume virtues? Here's a thought. We need to stop believing that the reason why our lives aren't working is because we're not gifted enough. As though if I only could do that a little bit better, then life would really start humming. Or or if I could actually achieve that, then my relationship would start to fit together. Rather than to say, the biggest blockade, the biggest barrier to my moving forward in life, to my experiencing the pleasures of God and the blessings of his kingdom, is my pride. My self-sufficiency, my hubris, my ego, whether if it's the big top kind of swagger that everyone sees or if it's the quiet kind of self-pity, which is really the wounded self that really believes he or she deserves more. The Beatitudes also address our emotional life and not just our character. You notice in verse 4, Jesus is blessed are those who mourn, which is a reference to an ability to grieve and not numb yourself to the pains and the brokenness of life. Do you have that ability to grieve real losses, whether a loss of a job or a loss of a friend or a loss of what you might describe as innocence, maybe because you're bombarded with the injustices of life, that you're able to sit in there and just weep or just feel instead of just moving on to the next thing in the name of productivity and forward motion. Blessed are the peacemakers which is an ability to work through conflict without destructive anger or passive withdrawal. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, of course, which assumes that this person is not controlled by fear, even when the threats are very real. This might be surprising to you, to us, that the Bible includes emotional maturity in its definition of blessedness. See, because too many of us believe that the proof of spirituality is Christian activity, that busyness is godliness. Uh, Maybe you know a lot about the Bible, but your roommates or your kids are always getting beat up by your outbursts of anger, a bad temper. 
Maybe you're serving in a lot of ways, and somewhere you might even have been given leadership posts. You're a leader in the church or a leader in the workplace, but actually the vast majority of your decisions are nearly completely driven by fear. You might be a biological adult, maybe even an intellectual or theological adult, while still being an emotional infant or toddler. Dare we admit it? That we don't have a handle on our anger. Or that we don't know how to be sad well. Or for some of us, that we don't really know how to express unbridled joy. And laughter, which too is something that God deeply cares about as a fruit of your experience of his grace. Which is why Pete Scazzaro, who has done so much great work on this, he's an author and a pastor, he writes this, that emotional health and spiritual maturity cannot be separated. It is impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. We neglect our interior fail to be aware of what's going on inside of us. When we ignore the emotional component of our lives, we move through the motions of Christian disciplines, activities, and behaviors. Did you hear that? It's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. The Beatitudes invite us to see how important this inner life of our emotions really are a part of the strength of our faith and of our spiritual vitality. So will we learn to pay attention to these things, again, beneath the surface? Really giving ourselves towards growing in, in some area of, of character or a piece of emotion. Again, for example, maybe it's a desire to become more merciful, because you know you have a, a critical spirit. Maybe you're pointing out people's wrongs all the time. Or maybe you endeavor to become more teachable. Uh, having this posture of I want to learn and grow, which of course assumes that I don't know it all. And so you're not actually a defensive person when people point out your wrongs. Or maybe you say I want to learn how to grieve. And I've said it a couple times and so maybe it's clicking with you. I, I want to learn how to mourn. I want to learn how to... To, to let things go and to see things die, so to speak, in life and not move on too quickly in the name of efficiency or productivity. Whatever it might be, maybe you write it down right now, maybe you give it thought this coming week, maybe you actually start applying yourself to growing in this newfound way. But do you understand the overarching message here that Jesus has given here? That God is less concerned with what you accomplish with your hands, even in Jesus' name, than what you cultivate in your heart. Let me say that again. That God is less concerned with what you accomplish with your hands, even in Jesus' name and for his sake, than what we cultivate in our hearts. That's not to say that our work doesn't matter or that our ministry activity is meaningless, no. But it is to say that God cares about who you are more than what you do. Do you believe that? First lesson of the Beatitudes is to look beneath the surface. The second lesson is this, that the way up 
is the way down. The way up is the way down. You heard it. The Beatitudes are a surprising call to lowliness. To lowliness. Notice, blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3, not those who are rich in spiritual resources. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn, not those who are tough and tearless. Blessed are the meek, not those who've got great swag. Right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not those who have perfectly mastered righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, not those who refuse to turn the other cheek. There's nothing greater than the blessedness, the blessing of God. But Jesus makes it very clear that in his kingdom... The road to the mountains of blessedness always passes through the valley. The way up is the way down. Success in Jesus' kingdom comes by way of apparent failure. We're familiar with this lesson. It's true in so many areas of life, whether in life or business or sports, so many stories of how failure actually provides some of life's most enduring lessons. You may or may not know that Walt Disney, the founder of the Disney empire, really, started a number of businesses before Disneyland was constructed and before Mickey Mouse became Mickey Mouse, a number of businesses that ended in bankruptcy. Uh, You may or may not know that he was also early on fired by a newspaper editor because, quote, he lacked imagination and had no good ideas. Walt Disney. You may know that J.K. Rowling, the famed author of the Harry Potter series, started off unemployed. She was on public assistance, confesses depression, while she would spend countless nights in coffee shops scribbling out ideas for this idea of a novel about wizards. Uh, Harry Potter, of course, was rejected by a dozen publishers, and as the legend now goes, the only reason why it got published at all was because the publisher, the publishing house's CEO's eight-year-old daughter begged him to please publish it, and that's how it got out the door. It's interesting as this great author reflects upon her early years of apparent failure, she says this several years ago in a commencement address. Failure meant a stripping away of the essential. I stopped pretending to myself that I was anything other than what I was. And I began to direct all my energies to finishing the only work that mattered to me. Had I really succeeded at anything else, I might never have found the determination to succeed in the one area where I truly belonged. I was set free because my greatest fear had been realized and I was still alive. And so rock bottom became a solid foundation upon which I rebuilt my life. Of course, when you hear Rowling's words, you start to hear how this isn't just a common sense, the way life works in business 
or in sports kind of a proverb. This, in fact, goes to the depth of spiritual reality in the kingdom of God. Where so often when God intends to take us to the heights, he first causes us to pass through the deep valleys of suffering and pain where everything that feels essential gets stripped away. And where even in our failures, we begin to find this mystery of freedom. It's most especially true as you confront the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ who takes all of us who in our deepest moral failures before the prospect of being confronted with the worst of all our worst nightmares which is what? Not losing your job not losing your friends losing your life and then losing your life after life Standing before the God of the universe with your whole life record exposed before him and all else. With all of your selfishness and your injustice and your addiction to me. What the Bible calls sin. And to know that God justly and rightly could judge you and cast you out after living a whole life of running away from him. That he actually might in his fairness, give you what you'd been asking for all your life long, that great fear of facing the judgment of God, and yet to be forgiven because Jesus paid it all. To know that Jesus has died the death that you should have died and lived the life that you should have lived, that you might know and experience the blessedness of God. And for you to know that in the face of all that rampant moral failure, and maybe you're barely even willing to call yourself that, a moral failure, that you might be able to say together with this author, though with slightly different meaning, finally I was set free because my greatest fear had been realized and I was still alive in Jesus. You might start actually believing that other kinds of failures might also be part of that road to glory. That being able to admit and confront your own weakness and inabilities. I love what our sister Millery shared earlier in saying, in posing that question, could, could I have possibly learned the richness of what it means to live in Christ alone and to be saved in Christ alone, apart from the suffering and the trials and the pain, the excruciating pain that I've endured these last several years. I don't think so, she says. I don't think so, Jesus says. But we won't ever accept this until we start to believe in the surprising power of weakness. I mean, let's be real. From the world's vantage point, from the perspective of the survival of the fittest, this list of beatitudes simply is a list for losers. The humble, the meek, 
those who turn the other cheek? You've got to be kidding me. But then listen to 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul is quoting words that he heard directly from Jesus as he himself was struggling with some pressing limitation or illness or moral flaw. We don't know what exactly it is, but he called it a thorn in his side that he would beg Jesus to take away. And Jesus said, nope, I'm going to leave it there for your good that you might experience even the powers of failure and stumbling for your greater good. Paul says, this is what he heard from Jesus. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. So why are we running from weakness? Do you want the power of Christ upon you? Why are you erecting a fortress of perfection around your life and your reputation? Why are you keeping a distance from honest confession of your sins when that is exactly the gateway of the grace and glory of God right into the soul and the deepest parts of your life where you most long for assurance? Why are we living lives covered with masks and, and, masks and, and duct tape and foolish fakery? trying to pretend always that we're something that we're not, that we're better than we are when really behind closed doors we weep and mourn because we know that we're not all that. Do you know that Jesus loves you when you're that? Do you know that Jesus accepts you when you are weak and broken and confronted with your limitations and your flaws and your sin and your need for a Savior? He says, I'm right here for you, weak one. Do you know that? This is the way the kingdom of God works. This is the way in which his power flows in us and through us. My power is made perfect in weakness. And why should we be surprised? Because isn't that itself the story of the cross? That salvation would be achieved through the ugliness of loss. That life would be given through a death. That forgiveness would be supplied through a judgment of one who stood as our substitute. Do we believe in the secret power of embracing our weakness and imperfections. And if we would, would we begin not to hide from our flaws, but rather to boast in them, because here lies the power of Christ. Would we dare to actually maybe start meeting with a counselor, as some of you may need, because I'm okay with not having it all together? Would we begin to be more honest with people that are closest to us about those deep, dark places that we would never let anyone into or never disclose? 
Would we actually live with more energy because we have the strength, the confidence of knowing that I'm loved, not despite my weaknesses, but in them? Because Jesus loves me so. Because as Romans 5, 8 declares to us again and again, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we got our act together. Not after we were made whole. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and made us whole, dear broken brothers and sisters. This is the promise of Christ for you, for me. Would we learn to pray as the Puritans would pray, as I've shared this prayer in the past? Lord, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Let me find your light in my darkness, your life in my death, your joy in my sorrow, your grace in my sin, your riches in my poverty, your glory in my valley. Amen. Do you want to be blessed like this? He offers it to you today. Let's pray. Which we need to do, Lord Jesus, because we don't believe in this way. We're addicted to perceptions of strength and togetherness. We're scared to be weak and to let you in. We don't want to look beneath the surface to those deeper places of character and emotion. We live lives of performance and pretending. Set us free by the grace and the love of Christ. Oh, help us to believe Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing.